right. Hey, everybody. It's Larry with Taylor Trash Fly Fishing coming to you from the world-famous studio here in the double-wide trailer in Oak Hill, Florida from the most genuine fly fishing podcast in the world. This is uh, kind of a beer with Jason Bowman. Um, Jason is down from North Carolina. And howdy, Jason. How's it going? Good, Larry. How are you today? Good, good, sir. Um, Jason, just uh, for those of us that uh, know you, we, we're familiar with your company and your Instagram um, presence, but uh, there's probably going to be a, quite a few people that don't know who you are. So why don't you go ahead and take a moment to give us like the 30,000 foot view introduction of yourself and then we're going to dive in and get to really know you right on uh, my name is jason bowman i live in brevard north carolina and i own a little off-road shop up in uh, brevard called ogre ogre stands for off-road gear and recreation equipment uh, we've been in business for about 21 years now uh, so basically what we do is we build custom trucks and accessories for those trucks that get you outdoors to go fly fishing or snowboarding, or surfing, or skiing, or hiking, or whatever you like to do. We focus more on the outdoor recreation side than we do the actual rock crawling, hardcore off-road side. Okay, awesome. Um, I believe that's probably the mechanism where you and I first became aware of each other. Um, I don't know that we were ever introduced, but uh, you were actually the design and... Um, fabricator behind a project that never really kind of went full launch. Um, Toei um, was involved, and it was like a it was going to be a fly fishing truck with a Toei skiff that uh, went on uh, overhead rack on a F two fifty, I think it was. But uh, I was working as uh, a rep for a fly rod company and uh there was a lot of passing around to the hat you know looking for people to invest money because uh once the truck was built it was going to be like the centerpiece of some film that was made and uh it wasn't till years later that uh, we realized that we kind of knew each other through that um That's right. before we really knew knew each other um but uh, I would say that uh, we're just going to go ahead and kick it off and get, you know, after it really quick here, probably over the, what, the last two and a half years it's going on. Come, I'm, I know it's going into the third year for me um, or thereabouts. We've really had an opportunity to get a lot closer and uh, form a, a tighter friendship and Unfortunately, it's because both of us uh, have the same disease, uh, <laughs> prostate cancer. That's right. And uh, I had mentioned, you know, my beginnings of my prostate cancer journey on the regular T2F2 podcast, and you had listened to that episode, so you reached out um, and called me and said, hey, man, um, exactly what were the symptoms that you were experiencing, you know, and we had a discussion and by the end of the discussion, um, my 
advice to you was? Yeah, your exact word was go get fucking checked right away. Yeah. And uh, the results were, unfortunately, that uh, you kind of did what I did. And uh, the reason we're talking about it isn't to be morbid. Uh, It's not to be, you know, asking for sympathy or anything otherwise. But uh, Jason and I both uh, are hopeful that uh, somehow they stumble into a cure before our time is over and our ticket is punched. But uh, both of us have been told by the doctors, you know, it's just they can't tell you how long you're going to be here. But, you know, what's what's the, you know, at closing time, they say, you know, you, you can't stay here. Got to go somewhere. Uh, Got to go somewhere. And we're, we're headed that somewhere at some point because uh, they don't really have a cure. They're just managing and trying to buy us time. So, um, and I, I also say it, doctors, uh, just because a doctor says something doesn't mean it's a hundred percent truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you're in the same place that I am. Um, you know, when you get a diagnosis like that, um, you have a choice to make. You can say, Oh my Lord, I'm dying of cancer. Or you can say, well, shit, I guess I'm living with cancer, which means you're going to get to go see the doctor a little bit more often. You're going to get poked and prodded and blood drawn and scans done and in between all that shit you just live your life and if anything i would say the benefit of getting that diagnosis looking at the glass half full is shit that is really not important anymore like becomes very apparent in your life you know the drama fades away the little idiosyncratic irritants are no longer irritants. You're like, fuck, I ain't got time for that. That's yep. that's just beneath my level of give a fuck. So um, it actually simplifies life and like brings a lot of clarity. And, um, you know, I've had uh, a couple of friends call in the last couple of weeks. They're like, man, looks like you're spending a hell of a lot of time on the bow of a skiff lately. And I'm like, fuck, every chance I get. So... Uh, you know, you and I, like I said, have gotten to know each other um, because of that common thread. But uh, more so than that, uh, as we've gotten to know each other, um, you know, the the beer with, which neither of us are drinking a beer because neither of us uh, choose to drink alcohol anymore. The energy drink with. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Uh, a nice soda with. Um, just because it's a choice we've made. So... Uh, what we what we found out through time together is, you know, like I've said about other people I've interviewed, everybody has an awesome story. You know, you don't have to be the chosen one rock star within the fly fishing community to have an awesome story. There's everybody has a pretty cool story. It's just who has the opportunity to sit down and share it on a wider platform. And while we're certainly not the biggest platform out there, I do enjoy doing these things. And having got to know you, I think you have a hell of a story to tell. So um, let's start with where was Jason in his formative years? You know, where were you born? Where'd you go to elementary school? Let's let's go from, you know, up through high school. Like, tell me about where are you from? Uh, I'm from a little town called Dublin in Dublin, Virginia. Uh, it's in the part of southwestern Virginia, mountain town. Uh, my grandmother was from the county above Pulaski County, where Dublin is, and my grandfather was from the county below. So when they got married, they met in the middle. 
That way they could kind of be close to each other's family. Uh, my granddad was a World War II vet, grew up during the Depression. He was an orphan. And I'm telling you this because it ties into the story later. Um, very loving family. Uh, everything revolved around, around my grandmother and my granddad's house. We had Thanksgiving there. Uh, my two uncles would always come in for Thanksgiving, Christmas. Everything around, My grandmother was the matriarch of the family. Um, everything was great. Uh, went to school there. Uh, I got a, had another sister. got two sisters, uh, but at the time I only had the one sister. Grew up, uh, we and my dad even built a house on part of my granddad and my grandma's property. So we were a very close-knit family. Um, and then when I was 10 years old, my uncle, who was a state trooper, he was a Marine, and then we got out of the Marine Corps, he was a Virginia state trooper, got murdered. Um, he got murdered, not in the line of duty. Uh, someone knocked on his door at 4 o'clock in the morning and stabbed him 42 times and killed him. So, of course, uh, that changed my, life. Changed everything. Um, my grandmother and my granddad went from being, you know, everything happened at their house to nothing happened at their house. No more Christmases, no more Thanksgivings. Uh, my grandmother went into a such deep depression um, that she went mad. I mean, she she died from dementia, but uh, I mean, I'm. I'm convinced that she just went crazy because they never found out who killed him. Um, and then, you know, my, my uncle became a alcoholic, a severe alcoholic. He died from it. Uh, wow. Because he was there at my, he was visiting my uncle when it happened. Um, and he chased the guy down the road and tried to catch him, but just couldn't. Um, and then my parents, uh, my dad dealt with the grief of losing his brother the best way he knew how, and that was to go to work and just work. And my mom and dad did very well taking care of me and my sister, and then later on my third sister. But uh, as a result of that, they I don't think they knew how to deal with it. And I won't say me and my sister got uh, thrown to the wayside, mm-hmm. but they were in so much grief, they just didn't know how to handle it. And this was like what? what 1984. 1984. I was 10, I was 10 years old. My sister was nine. You know, I was actually in prep school in Virginia, just outside of Charlottesville. And I understand his murder took place like Manassas. Manassas, Virginia. So just north, you know, like just outside of D.C. Um, You know, I looked after you told me that the other day, I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, Because one of the distinctions of the case with your uncle is it's the only unsolved law enforcement murder in the state of Virginia That's currently, right. right? That's correct. Um, the FBI currently is the lead investigative agency. Correct. And, uh, you know, when I, I, I read a little, a couple of little articles on it online, um, and I don't know if you know more about it. And, and you know, I thought it was odd that they collected a pair of sunglasses, a hard hat, and a wig. And a wig. Yep. My, when my uncle grabbed him by the hair of the head, that it all came, came off. off. Right. So uh, I did see where, shit, it's been 12 years ago, I think 2010, the FBI did more. Um, they reop- they, The case has always been open, but they assigned a new person and they kind of like reopened the case. Well, they, they were able to utilize some, some of the evidence uh, 
to do some DNA profiling. Right. DNA didn't exist in 1984. Sure. So my, my uncle's body's been exhumed twice that I know of. Because you can think of, you know, if somebody had a wig on, there was probably hairs exactly. that are on the inside of the wig. So, you know, it could be that someday, you know, now that um, I think every felon in the United States, especially if they go to prison, they get, you know, a swab done and they go into a DNA profile uh, right. database. So that's probably the most likely way that it's going to, you know, a hit come up that way. But, um, you know, when I was a law enforcement officer, one of the ways that we made extra money um, was on a day off or a night off. We would pick up a shift and sit in our car with our lights on, you know, at a construction zone and, uh, you know, for traffic control. And just like when I when I said hard hat and sunglasses, I was like, you know, is this, was he, did he ever work any, you know, and like make somebody mad on a, on a road crew? Like it was just, you know, I mean, my mind just went everywhere. So is, are, are there any other details that your family ever shared with you or? They've never shared. I was so young when it happened. Right. But I remember the FBI coming to my house every weekend and they would ask my dad and my grandmother questions and they would ask them real personal questions. You know, he was stabbed 42 times. Yeah. You don't kill somebody. Yeah, that's you that's stabbed 42 times unless you're fucking pissed off about That's what something. I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's somebody that's real it's a fucking personal up close killing. And the newspaper even would release the wife is a prime suspect. His partner is a prime suspect. To bet it's still unsolved. So uh, you know, it's the guy that they thought might have done it is dead now. He killed himself. Okay. So maybe he did do it. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. Right. Um, a lot of weird shit that, you know, are all around that story. Um, but, you know, like I said, I was 10. I just know how it affected the yeah. family that we still had. Um, and, my, you know, my mom and dad were trying to shield me from that. Um, you know, I'm sad to hear how... It affected your family because, you know, in today's law enf- enforcement community, uh, for the most part, uh, not universally, but for the most part, um, there's a, a real big circling of wagons. Um, you know, the thin blue line when it comes to a, a police officer, whether it's in the line of duty or off duty, everybody comes together and they focus on the family left behind. And they make sure that they're taken care of and that they get the counseling they need and the support that they need. And probably back in the mid-80s, they probably didn't have quite that level of, you know, hey, what about the kids? What about the brother and sister? What about the parents? And you guys are just left to fend, you know, your, your parents and your grandparents were left to fend for themselves. I mean, today, you know, they would have grief counselors and, you know, victim right. advocates and, they had none of that. None of that. Yeah. But, you know, the saving grace and all that was my granddad, my papa. Um, he was an orphan. Mm-hmm. He was an orphan at six years old. Uh, he knew, he didn't have a childhood. He knew me and my sister were, were about to not have one. And so he he saw that. And he was like, hey, boy, come down here and hang out with me. And we started fishing. And so that's where the fishing part of my life started started was my granddad saving my saving my childhood so to speak 
Now, did Granddad just take you fishing with like a cane pole and crickets? Zebco <laughs> 33, yeah. a can of worms, man. There you go. That's how I started. Yeah. You know, sitting on uh, this little rocky point on Boone Lake, um, climbing Catawba trees and getting Catawba worms and digging up, you know, night crawlers and feeding the brim and the occasional bass that would grab it underneath the bobber. Yeah. Um, how'd you end up getting into fly fishing? Um, so, you know, I grew up fishing the New River there in Virginia, Clear Lake. And when I got, my granddad died four years after that. Okay. Um, so I kind of quit fishing after he died. I just didn't have the heart to do it. Uh, went through high school, barely graduated high school, barely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I met a girl that moved down here to my high school from Massachusetts. And that summer we started dating and I got her pregnant and I married her. And so in 1991, economy wasn't that great, and no one was rushing out to hire an 18-year-old kid with no skills. So I did what I had to do and joined the Marine Corps. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story, but I was going to join the Air Force, and I called the Air Force recruiter, and he's like, hey, man, yeah, just be down here at 5 o'clock. I looked at your ASVAB scores. You're good to go. Or not, yeah, ASVAB. And uh, went down there at 5 o'clock. There ain't an Air Force guy to be found in that building. Nowhere. I was pissed. So I'm walking out the door. Guess who was there? Marine Corps recruiter. Uh-huh. And I heard, I was walking out the door and he goes, I heard him. Hey, buddy, what are you looking for? Air Force guy. Oh, well, he ain't here. Well, yeah, he said he'd be here at five. Huh. That's the kind of branch you want to join? <laughs> they tell you you're going to be somewhere and they're not? Come on, come on inside and talk to me for a minute. Three weeks later, I'm on my way to Paris Island. Wow, that's yeah. fast. Yeah. So anyway. Um, I joined the Marine Corps, and we can go back to this later, but how I got into fly fishing was after I got out of the Marine Corps, I had the GI Bill, and I went, moved to Colorado to go to Denver Automotive and Diesel College. And one of the guys I w- worked with invited me to go fishing with him. And I show up with his Echo 33 <laughs> can of worms. He's like, bro, it's time to teach you a new way of fishing. And it was a, he had a fly rod in his boat. And that's, that's how it kind of started. Okay. And then... Saw that damn movie, River Runs Through It, after that. Uh-huh. And I told my wife, I was like, I kinda think I kind of like to get into fly fishing. And she bought me a fly rod kit from Walmart. Okay. That court, remember the Cortland fly rod kit? Yep. She got, bought it for me for Christmas, and that was that was the start of it, man. Uh, the bug was in me then. Nice. Yep. And now, where were you all living when, when that happened? Denver, Colorado. Still living out west. Okay. That's even something I didn't realize until we were sitting here talking. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. So uh, Marine Corps life um, took you a few places across the world. Took me all over the world. Uh, I was a Humvee mechanic, 3521. Uh, was at Camp Lejeune. And from there, we w- this was during the Clinton years. So if you, don't, if you remember, Clinton was doing humanitarian shit for everybody and everything in the world back then. So, like... When the Haitians were fleeing Haiti, my battalion was down at Guantanamo Bay. When the Bahamians needed a new hospital built, my battalion went to the Bahamas and built the it was the motel that was in the 007 movie, converted it to a hospital. And I didn't I didn't go to those places, but I was the guy fixing all the the Hummers to uh-huh. go over there. I did go to Santa Fe, New Mexico, for a summer and build a rifle range for, for the DEA and do border patrol stuff. Then I went to Okinawa, Japan. Then I went to Thailand. Then I went to Guam, Korea, Hawaii, California. Um, so I had a really good time in the Marine Corps. 
Um, luckily, I didn't do any war stuff. Somalia, I did do, so if you saw a white Hummer during the Somalia time, um, I'm the one who probably painted it. Uh, I, we did all the Hummers to go to Somalia when I was in. Yeah, those were technically a UN they peacekeeping. Went to the UN. Yeah, right. when we were like supposed to wear the blue helmets on shit, but right. my unit was like, "Fuck no, we're not doing that. We're Marines. We're not UN." Right. Um, so, but I didn't go to Somalia. I just did all the support for Somalia. Gotcha. So, uh, at the conclusion of your Marine Corps service, thank you for that, by the way. Oh, thanks. Um, you uh, moved back home. Nope. Uh, didn't want to go home. I said I when I joined the Marine Corps, I said I was never going back to Virginia. Okay. So we got out. Didn't wasn't ready to go home. Uh, I had the GI Bill, and I was looking for places to go to. An, I was I wanted to stay, keep being a mechanic. So I found a tech school in Denver called Denver Automotive and Diesel. So I applied and I got in. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, I flew straight from Okinawa, checked out in California, Camp Pendleton, and then went straight to Denver, and uh, went to school there for a year, eighteen months. Okay. Um, finished that up while I was there and I had a job offer in Idaho and that's where I was heading. I was heading to McCall, Idaho to work as a, just a mechanic. And my wife called her sister to come out to help us move up there. I, sh- I should have known that was the beginning of the end. Cause when she came, I, they kept kind of talking in secret, not in front of me. We're loading up the U-Haul and the day before we were supposed to go to Idaho, my wife said, I'm going home to be near my mom, which is in Virginia. Ooh. And so I was like, no, we're supposed to go to Idaho. And her sister had talked her into mom's by herself now, and she's getting old, you know, older. Mm-hmm. She'd love, really love to have the grain. We had two kids at that time. Right. Uh, Matthew and Lauren. And I uh, said, really like to have her, have the grandkids and everybody close to mom. And she talked her into talking to me about moving back. And I said, all right. So that's what we did. Moved back to Virginia. After I said I'd never fucking go back to that state. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Virginia's for lovers. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) So you find yourself back in Virginia. Yep. Moved back to Virginia. Uh, I got a job at... I bounced around for a couple of places there when I first moved back. Couldn't find my good... Couldn't find a good fit. And then I went to work for a guy named David Jinks. And... David Jinks is one of my top mentors in my life. Uh, he's dead now also, but give you a little bit of backstory on David. He worked for Dale Earnhardt and his crew. I don't know what he did exactly, but uh, he was in the NASCAR game for a while. That's cool. Quit that, and he came home to Raffert, Virginia, which is right next to Dublin, and opened a garage. And I went to work, and I went to work for him. Uh, I remember showing up over there, and, and I had a snap-on box the size of a just a little roll you know the little roll carts right i said bro i just got out of tech school i have like three months actual experience i was in marine you know talking about being a humvee mechanic marine corps and but i still didn't have that experience of like you know an ase master tech or anything right i said man but i really need a fucking job i just got my wife pregnant with our third child um and he was like seemed like all right kid i'll give you a chance and within four years, I was running his shop for him. So uh, he took a chance on me, and I busted my ass to prove that he didn't make a mistake. And within four years, I was the head dude of his shop. So I'm, I'm forever forever, and uh, grateful to him. Like I said, he died a few years ago. Now, I think if I remember right, you actually have 
the sign from that shop um, or a shop, your former shop in Virginia, on the wall at Ogre. That's Radford Auto Center. So the, when I left David's, I started my own shop, okay. Radford Auto Center. There you, okay. And so that's the sign from that shop. Okay. So, yeah. To, uh, and even when I told David I was leaving to start my own shop, he did everything he could to support me. And I was one of his competitors. I mean, I was literally half a mile down the street. Right. He he saw the bigger picture. He uh, he's truly a mentor, like you said. Yes, he you know, was. he he obviously gave you the shot, watched you flourish, and then let you fly out of the nest. That's right. And you know, that's one of the things. You know, you and I both are. You know, I'm a couple of years older than you, and uh, naturally, at this age, you should start being shift towards what can I give back. Um, and then you compound it with having an illness that makes you go, well, maybe I should accelerate that, That's you right. know? And so you do want to share and you do want to mentor and, you know, help people avoid pitfalls that you may have already experienced in life and say, look, let me, let me negotiate the minefield for you, help you to get to success because there's nothing better than being able to look back five, 10 years and say, I changed that kid's trajectory, you know? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you could still be doing fucking oil changes and service at, you know, but you're not. You've got your own. Yeah. Uh, dude, I blew up two motors working for that man, by the way, and he never even so much as raised his voice at me. He was just like, well, go figure it out, man. But you learn from it, right? Like, he was so chill. Right. With me. And he was chill with everybody. He was just, everybody in town loved him. He was just a great dude. But if you work for me and blow up a motor, to this day, I don't know if I'm going to be as chill as he was. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck, bro? But, yeah, he was just, God almighty, he was such a good dude. So you, you find yourself there, you know, in Radford. Um, you, you've got your start as a mechanic in the civilian world. You've matriculated to being a business owner. Are you fly fishing this whole time uh, as you're moving along, or do you not um, have time for it? Yeah, I am. Okay. Um, and so, so while I was at Rafford, uh, I was fly fishing was just the hobby, you know, at that point. And so, like 2004, 2005, I got bored and applied to be a Virginia Master Naturalist, which, you know, just something to do as far as being, you know, I can identify tree species, right. animal species, anything. Yeah, we have the Florida naturalist uh, program okay. here, and uh, a lot of the classes for it are taught at Marine Discovery Center. Oh, nice. Um, and, it, you know, they're constantly sending out emails that, you know, this module to be a master naturalist, you know, come sign up, come to the class, whatever. Yeah, that's that's a big deal down here as well. Okay. So, yeah, I was doing that, and a lady came to – You got he had to do so many hours a year to keep it current. And so a lady named Dawn Kirk, D-A-W-N Kirk, came to the one of the classes, and she was a brook trout biologist for the state of Virginia. She's like, hey, we're mapping all the brook trout streams in the state of Virginia, shocking them, doing inventory, and seeing what effect acid rain has on them. If anybody wants to volunteer, I got all the hours you could ever want this summer. So let me know at the end of the class. I was the only dude that walked up to her. I think I was the only fly freshman class, to be honest with you. And to be honest, to be fair, most people there was in their 70s, you know, mm-hmm. 
So what she was requiring was kind of strenuous work. But anyway, so I walked up to her. I was like, hey, ma'am, I'm your guy. Because, you know, at the time I was fly fishing. I just kind of moved back to Virginia a few years ago. Yeah, you're like, what, that. late 20s? Yep. So uh, I was like, I'm in. And so that summer I hiked with her, and we shocked damn near every trout stream in the state of Virginia. And we, you know, did water samples. We shocked to see the size of brook trout's brook trout and uh found some big fucking brook trout in the state of virginia that i didn't realize was there and uh at the end of the summer and this is kind of before the internet took off and you know gis and all that stuff she gave me copies of all the data data and the log books of everywhere we went and the size of the fish i still got it to this day so the average average brook trout Six, eight inches. Correct. Um, a lot of guys catch a 12-inch brook trout, and that's a trophy. That's right. What's some of the bigger? 17 inches. 17-inch brook 16, trout. 16, 17 inches. That's fucking insane. Yeah. And I've, <laughs> well, I'll tell you when we get off this microphone where it was at. Okay. But, uh, we found one, two. We found three with big trout in them. One of them was in Shenandoah National Park. Mm-hmm. I'll let if any viewers out there in Virginia want to go find it out, I'll give them that hint. That's as far as I'm going. Right. Um, but we also found a shit ton of big rainbows and a shit ton of big browns. But she didn't care about that. She was she all she cared about was brook trout. Right. Um, you know, so this is interesting to me because uh, Smoky Mountain National Park um, in the '60s, leading up to the early 70s was having um, extreme difficulties with uh, brook trout management uh, within the park because in the late 70s, you still had a lot of the, uh, I'm sorry, the late 60s, you still had a lot of the steel production going on up in the Rust Belt. It wasn't quite the Rust Belt yet, and uh, it was causing acid rain throughout the park system. And the change of the pH of the water um, really had hampered their reproductive abilities. So uh, the numbers of brook trout had fallen to a degree within the park that in 1971, um, they said no more brook trout can be taken from the park. Zero uh, creel limit on brook trout. And it took 30 years, I think it was like around 2001, where they, or just, yeah, right around 2001, um, they had managed and recovered that system uh, to a point where not only did they open back up a creel limit for brook trout, but it was like two or three that you were allowed to take. Um, you know, it was like exponentially better. And uh, a lot of that was a result of studies that like you were participating in, in Virginia, where they would shock and figure out where they were finding the true big fish that had really good genetics that they wanted to, uh, see, you know, spawning. And then they were also trying to find areas where, those browns and rainbows could not reach them. And if they found a specimen that was 
big, robust, really like, you know, good brood stock, when they were doing their shocking, they would actually move it and they had documented like where certain waterfall features were that would allow them to put the brooks up above it to give them a shot to establish a new, you know, home range that had historically been a home range to them, but it would prevent the predation that they were having a problem with, with uh, all the eggs and stuff getting eaten by, by the Browns, by the Browns and the, the rainbows. But I mean, you know, that goes to show you, you know, sometimes solutions to problems that may are man caused take decades to, you know, balance themselves That's back right. out. So, so there's a lot of things I've learned about brook trout and just on the East Coast. One, Virginia has more brook trout streams than any other state on the East Coast combined, and that includes Maine. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, Coming from a man that lives in Transylvania County. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, two, most, of, a lot of the creeks in Virginia have a different, have limestone in it. So mm-hmm. it keeps the pH down compared to West Virginia. Oh, no shit. Pennsylvania, yeah. Okay. So that was a saving grace for a lot of those streams to keep producing trout. Um, and then I'll tell you a story about brown trout in Shenandoah National Park. We went up there to shock. They wanted all the brown rainbows out of the park back in the day. So we went up there to shock. I think it was Rose River. They wanted all the browns out. They were going to bring the trout truck. We were going to load them up, and they are going to transfer them somewhere else. But then, you know, make sure it became a brook trout stream, a river. We went up there. We shocked them. Trout truck didn't show up. And, bro, we had 25-plus-inch browns. We had to throw them on the bank. Because trout truck never showed up. I mean, I'm talking big motherfucking browns, man. Wow. Just had to. Just had to bonk them. them. Yeah. They were like, anybody want to eat brown trout tonight, take them. Because we're not putting them back in the river and the trout truck's not coming. It's a butt. And I don't even know if it worked because I'm pretty sure the Rose River still has brown trout in it. Mm. But, you know, it'd be, a, it'd be an amazing thing, in my opinion, to think that you could collect up every brown trout just going through shocking. How, I mean, yeah, physically, almost impossible. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say something else. I can't remember. I'll probably remember in a second about brook trout. Um, but, oh, they, they are so, let's say you've got a stream with one or two brook trout in it. Those things breed super fast. Like, you can go back in a year and there'll be 100 brook trout. I mean, as long as they got good, clean water, they're going to reproduce really quick. Okay. So... I'm not saying they're going to be huge, but they're going to reproduce really fast. Right. They have a really, they're really good at bouncing back quickly, but they need clean, oxygenated water. Doesn't get above 56 degrees, and and that's the other thing. Brown trout can survive in warmer water. That's mm-hmm. the other problem. Yeah. Well, they survived in uh, barrels coming across in uh, old sailboats, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Which makes me like, how the hell did brook trout get out west? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, someone transported them at some point. Right. So, um, where you live there in Radford, where you, you used to live, uh, it's pretty close to coal country. Yeah. Uh, kind of the yeah, northern fringe of it. Yeah. It's a couple of counties away. Okay. Um, when you guys were doing your study, you know, any of the. Any of the uh, mining operations down there? They were dead. All those, those, all those streams are just... Those counties down there were mm-hmm. dead. Okay. Without a doubt. 
Um, we there was a couple of streams we found over in Wise County. Okay. And a couple like Smith County and and uh, Washington County, but those aren't coal counties. Right. Um, but like uh, Russell County and I can't remember, like, right there in between Wise and Russell. Nothing, man. They're dead. I'd love to know what streams in Washington County. It's just over the border from I mean, Solvin. White Top Laurel. Okay. Um, Up towards Mount Damascus. Rock, yeah, sort of, uh, yeah, yeah, Mount Rogers. Mount Rogers all, those, okay. all those creeks. Yeah. Those, are, those are loaded with okay. trout in that area. Cause that that's a day that's an easy day trip. Yeah, um, those are great without having to go over to the Commonwealth of North Carolina. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, at some point you uh, decided that uh, your time in Virginia was uh, coming to an end. Were you still just turning wrenches and you know on cars, or had you started doing the, uh, well, the fabrication? Up. Back up a little bit. I was in Raffert for seven years. Okay. Nine, maybe nine years. But I was renting that building. Okay. And so I wanted to expand. I wanted to own a building. Mm-hmm. Couldn't find anything in Raffert. So one popped up north of me in Giles County, a little town called Pembroke. And I bought that building and relocated up there. Okay. And started, I couldn't take the name Raffert Auto Center with right. me. So I took Sage, I create, uh, started Sage Automotive. General mom and pop auto repair shop. I okay. thought I was going to die there. I was like, I found it. I found a little. I found a nice piece of property just right down the road. I was living there, nice little farm type property. I was like, I'm I'm in heaven. Now. Nirvana. I'm good to go. You found yeah. it. So I was doing auto repair, and I'll kind of tell you how I made the switch over to fabrication. I was doing a little bit of it, but this is what got me to do the switch. This guy came in my shop one day, and I did vehicle inspections. And he fell for brakes. I said, man, you need front brake pads, 100 bucks. Man, he got pissed. Like, didn't cuss me out, but just like, man, I can't believe you're screwing me over and this bull crap, blah, blah, blah. But he had me do it, and I did it. Right. Comes in a week later. Hey, man, I heard you do Flowmaster dual exhaust jobs. I'm like, yeah, but they're like five, 600 bucks. He's like, cool, so can I come back to you Tuesday and get it done? I was like, dude, you just cussed me out for doing... Hundred dollar brake job that you needed, right? And now you're getting that, an elective no, yeah, five hundred dollar exhaust job, no problem. So that's when the like the you'll get more you know money from a want than you will a need, right? And so here's where the fly fishing stuff came in. I was already fly fishing hardcore. Giles County has trout streams everywhere, so I was just in it. And right next door to me was a fly fishing guide shop called Tangent Outfitters. And one of the guys over there, this motherfucker named Wesley Hodges, worked there. I'm sure you know Wes. <laughs> I know Wes. <laughs> so Wes comes over to the shop one day, and he goes, hey, man, can you build me a fly fishing storage box for all my stuff in the back of my truck for what I'm gotten? Yeah, man. I weld it up, no problem. Something kind of started clicking when, he, when I built it. And then, like, all the guys, I'd, I'd always fix their guide vehicles for them because, you know, a guide vehicle's always breaking down. Right. But then they was like, hey, man, I heard you built Wes a fly box, and you build me this. Can you build me this rack? Can you build me this for towing my boat, blah, blah, blah. Kind of started rolling. And then it expanded from there to other guides at other guide shops started calling me to do stuff. And then... Was was Tangent when he was at that mercantile? No, it's before that. Okay. He left Tangent 
and went to that market, mercantile and started his own thing. Yeah, what was the name of that market? Was Draper Mercantile. Draper Mercantile. That's right. That's when I. That's when I met Wes. He was at Draper. I'd actually met Wes at a uh, TU meeting. Um, he had came. He was doing project healing. I uh, know. Yeah, was it Project Hilly Waters? I believe so. He was. Yep. Do, he came to talk about that. And with me, I was a vet. You know, he's an Army guy. I was a Marine Corps guy. We're veterans. That's how we got to meet and kind of be buddies because we both were veterans. But it was kind of just a weird coincidence that he got that job next next door at Tangent. I mean, it was right next door to me. So I started doing a lot of work with Wes on collabs because he would always have some crazy idea and I'm mm-hmm. like yeah fuck it man whatever I'll do it um, so I give him a lot of credit and he's a go getter yeah and man like I've known him a long time so he's like my brother um, I, I shouldn't have said that because he's going to hear this shit but uh, uh, hear me say that but he's a he's just a he's just a good dude and we're really tight and we really so, work well together you know you saying that illustrates something that you know we've talked about quite a few times on our regular podcast where you know if you want to excel at anything and then let's go specific to like fly fishing of what you know that's that's the passion that has brought us all together you you need to find and surround yourself with whether it's one other guy or a group of guys that are better than you and pay attention, keep your mouth shut, listen, learn, and they will recognize what you're there for and they will hitch, let you hitch your wagon and they will drag you right along up to the top of the hill and you're going to get better. Um, you know, a, a lot of people get into this sport and they want to be, you know, a number one long rod athlete, you know, Olympic level in two years. And it just doesn't happen. You know, you, you're going to need to put in a lot of time. You're going to have to get around the right people that really pull you along, and get you know, share the knowledge with you and get you up to speed. But, you know, here you are, you and Wes are starting to, you're hearing all these wild ideas from Wes. You're making them happen. Keep going. On that end, and I, to fall back on what you just said, I could not catch a muskie to save my life. Wes Hodges took me out, and on the third day, I caught my first muskie. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, he, yeah. he was the best fly fisherman in the state of Virginia. He probably still is, but um, he put me on my first muskie. He put me on my first six-plus-pound smallmouth. So... He knows what he's doing on the fly fishing side of things. So, and I know what I was doing on the welding and auto repair side of things. So, we worked well together as far as you teach me this, I'll teach you this. Right. You know what I mean? So, I'm building stuff for fly fishing guides and then other people in the state of Virginia. And then I get a phone call from a guy named David Grossman. Yes. <laughs> David owned a little magazine called Southern Culture on the Fly. You know, the old North Carolina mullet rapper. Yeah. So I went to the fly fishing show. At the time, it was in Winston-Salem, I think. It's the one that's uh-huh. in Atlanta now. Yep. I met David for the first time, and he sat down, and he's sitting. You know, David, is a he's a salesman, man. He's a talker. He's like, bro, build me a truck. 
put this on it. I want this on it. I want this on it. And in return, I'll, I'll, I'm we'll do a four part series of the build and the magazine. And I got a buddy up in West Virginia near you, and we'll film it all and we'll fish with the truck, and we'll, we'll put it in F three T. Cool. And I mean, that's a super opportunity yeah. for you because I, all of a sudden here's your budding, you know, build is going to be seen by all these people and it's going to inspire people to be like reaching out to you. Hey, build this for me. That's right. And I was sold. Like, he's like, I can't pay you, but we'll do this. And, you know, and advertising is this anyway, so it's going to be about the same price. It don't matter. And I was like, you know what? I'm trying to get my name out there. I'm in. Okay. He had a Dodge Ram. He brings the Dodge up. This is all my fault, what I'm about to tell you. I give him my brand new F-250 to take back to drive while I got his Dodge Ram up there. Because I was just so hungry to to get into the fly fishing scene. Um, Build his truck. Uh, His his photography or film guy comes down from West Virginia, and he, he films for a couple of days. And David does one article. He does the first article in the magazine. The end. That's <laughs> it. Uh, I get my truck back. I said, uh, it's not in the condition I gave it to him in. Right. Not a big deal, but I was a little irritated by that. Uh, what pissed me off was he did one article. Right. That's it. Yeah. So, you know, we had some words. We, we were a little unfriendly to each other there for about a year or two. I mean, you're probably, you're from, I mean, essentially, you know, as the crow flies, we're just at, at the most a couple of hundred miles apart, you know, where we grew up and uh, stomping grounds and where we were raised, your word is your word. A handshake means something. You shake a man's hand. That's it. That's it. You don't need a fucking contract. Amen. That's your contract. There you go. And we shook hands. That's right. So uh, I can understand because I've had personal, you know, dealings that didn't go the way that the handshake agreement was supposed to. So uh, ultimately, it is our fault because, you know, you didn't do your due diligence or, or whatever. But uh, I had one guy named Heath Carty. He's a, he's a guy in Transylvania County. This is before I ever moved to Transylvania County. He said, bro, you fucking up. Uh-huh. He told me that. Right. And listen, because like I said, I was kind of, I had my blinders on. Uh-huh. So anyway, I thought I got burned on that deal. Yeah, right. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later how I didn't. But here's what happened. I get a phone call one day from Noah Wilson with Outdoor Gear Builders in Western North Carolina. Hey, man, I saw your magazine article. We are trying to bring outdoor manufacturing and outdoor gear businesses to Western North Carolina. Would you be interested in relocating down here? I said, no, thank you. Appreciate Appreciate the the offer. Yeah. He said, all right, cool. But, hey, why don't you and your wife come on down and just, you know, check out Western North Carolina. We'll take you to a few towns. I said, all right, that's cool. Julie, my wife, Julie, loves Asheville. So we went down there. I toured Hendersonville, I toured Silva, I toured Asheville, and our last town we toured was a little town called Brevard, North Carolina. Right. We toured it, and if anybody knows about Brevard, you know, 275 waterfalls, 65% public land, blah, 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 trout fish in heaven. Looked at it, we got in the truck, went home, and my wife said, I don't know what you got to do, but we're moving to Brevard, North Carolina. (laughs) 
And my wife is not from Virginia. She's from Massachusetts. So she never went, she was never really in love with uh, with Virginia. So I said, all right, we're going to do it then. The kids had already, I had one daughter still at home. The other two kids were already at college or graduated college. And my daughter was a senior in high school, junior in high school by the time we moved down there. So we moved. And they offered me some tax incentives and helped me, you know, gave me some money to relocate there. I don't know if you believe in fate, but I kept fighting this. I was like, hell no, I'm staying in Virginia, man. So I said, but I'll tell you what. I said, well, you know, you don't like living on the little farm you live on. We'll sell it and try to find a house. Couldn't find anything. She found a house in Brevard. They were asking way out of our price range. We made an offer that was just so low that I was like, "There's even the realtor was like, hell no, man. Right. Why are you making me write this up? Yeah. They took it. They took our deal. Um, couldn't find a building in Brevard. I found one building I liked, but it was out of my price range. Mm-hmm. I made them an offer on it. We met with the lady, and she said, you remind me of my husband who died in that building. I'm going to let you have it at this price. Just, just everything just kept lining, lining up. up. So I finally quit fighting it, man. <laughs> Moved to Brevard. And I wish I'd done it 10 years before. Is that guy's name Sam? Sam. <laughs> Are you talking about a black dog? <laughs> I, I just thought maybe the husband's name was Sam or no, something. No, uh, his name was uh, Donnie. Okay. Donnie Kilpatrick. Um, so, yeah, it was the greatest move I ever made. So... Even though I was mad at David for the whole magazine deal, uh-huh. I guess I need to thank David for right, the magazine deal. because it opened that door. That's because that's where I'm at now. Yeah. I mean, what do they say? You know, things happen for a reason. Right. So, you know, one door closes, another door opens. And, uh, you know, if you go through life at least a majority of the time uh, with the glass half full type attitude, you never know what, what you're going to find. That's right. That's awesome. So... Um, once you get over to Brevard, it's just full rip ogre. Hell no. First two years, I almost starved to death. Oh, uh, shit. I, I was like, I've made a terrible mistake, man. Because <laughs> um, I was basically out of the auto repair game. I was just going to do the fabrication stuff. Right. Um, I was lucky enough, I had bought some land down there, and I sold it and made a real good profit at kind of the last second, and I was able to like keep all my payments current and keep going. But right, I had to sell my truck, I had to sell my land, I had to sell a lot of shit that I liked to keep going. But I made it and then started doing a little bit of auto repair again too while I was there. And two years goes by and I start seeing that light at the end of the tunnel. I start getting contracts for building my bike trailers. Start getting contracts to start building custom trucks, you know, a couple of good big truck builds. And uh Outdoor Gear Builders had brought me down there, started this thing called the Waypoint Accelerator Program. And basically what that is, they took the local mom and if you were at like this level, the local mom and pop level, right? They they gave you like a 6-month Harvard Business School style crash course to bring you up to where you can start manufacturing or you know, right. bring you up with the big boys. Kind of an incubator. Yep. And uh their very first uh Waypoint Accelerator, they asked uh they said, we're looking for applicants, and I applied, and I got in. And uh, so I took that course for six months, and they taught me how to, you know, kind of streamline making, you know, 
yeah, that's cool. You're making custom parts, but you need to start manufacturing parts and streamlining them and marketing them and hiring employees and be more of a business right. person instead of me, excuse me, working in the shop all the time. So I finished that program. Uh, I put together a business plan and said, this is what we're going to do. And what we're going to do is we're going to build flatbeds. We're going to build bed racks, but we're going to make them for a specific vehicle and we're going to manufacture them. That way, if, if, if you come in and say, I want a custom bed rack for a 1923 model, you know, whatever, sorry, bro, this is what I got. Either buy it or don't buy it. Right. It's kind of like having a, like if I go to a Starbucks in Florida or a Starbucks in North Carolina, they are exactly the same because they got that employee manual. Right. I've got a manual now of how those things are going to be run at Ogre in North Brevard, North Carolina. Right. If I was to open up a Brevard Ogre in Mississippi, it's going to be the same. And I'm, people can either buy it or they don't buy it. Right. And the reason I'm telling you this, like a custom job, I, it takes me three weeks to design it on the AutoCAD. It takes me three months to do trial and error, making sure it fits and welding here, welding there. If I do one for an F-250... It's there. If you got an F two fifty and say I want a bed rack, it's boom, a matter of there it is. Right, I already got it. Running the CAD file. Yep. And so that's what that business school kind of taught me. You know, streamline things, make it. They buy it or they don't buy it. Quit doing custom shit all the time. Right. Um, did I quit doing custom stuff? Kinda. I still do one every now and then because I love it. I love I love doing it. Right. But from a money standpoint, a business standpoint. That's how that's kind of where we shifted our focus. To. So most of your stuff is focused in the F series. The F, the F. So not only Ford trucks, but the Super Duty Ford trucks from like ninety nine to present. Okay. And that's flatbeds, that's bumpers, that's suspension systems, that's bed racks, all that. Um, like, like I said, if if every now and then a Toyota will come in and we're a little slow, yeah, I'll do it. But for the most part. I don't really mess with it. Do you ever mess with like classic Broncos? Oh yeah, I built uh, you know I built Oliver White's Bronco. <laughs> Is that why you brought that up? <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering. Tell us yeah, about that little uh, that little journey. So me, Wes asked me. Wes Hodges asked me to work with him at the Atlanta Fly Fishing Show. He was at the time working for a guy a lodge up in Maine, and they had a booth there. That's where he does uh, his fall upland bird hunts. That's right. Yep. Done there working the booth with him. And there's a guy at uh, Dave's Mirror Outfitters named Walker Parrott. Mm-hmm. And Walker was kind of buddies with Oliver. And Oliver was, I think they were shooting the shit. And uh, Oliver said, hey, man, I just bought this old Bronco and I need someone to fix it up. And Walker said, yeah, I know the guy. And it was me. And so he sent Oliver over to my booth. But I didn't know who he was. So he's talking to me. You know, if you ever met Oliver, he's got a big old beard, no shoes half the time. You know what I mean? He looked like, not a bum, but he looked like, the, you know, the fly fishing. He looks like a dirty mountain hippie. <laughs> yeah. So, but I love Oliver. He's a great dude. Anyway, he's asked me about his Bronco and I'm going, sure, man, give me a call. Here's my car. You know, I just go yeah. through the motions. I didn't think another thing about it. And then Walker walks up to me. He's like, motherfucker, you better do that deal. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, Google Oliver White when you get home. 
And then I told Wes wasn't at the booth when I came up, and Wes came up and I told him. And Wes was like, you better do that deal, bro. And so I got home and Googled Oliver White, and I was like, yeah, I'll do that deal. <laughs> and so and me and Oliver wound up becoming great friends over that. Didn't he end up ultimately selling that truck because he took a endorsement deal from he did somebody that, else? He did that show on Outside Magazine or Outside TV sponsored by Chevrolet. There you go. That's what I was he thinking. Allowed, he wasn't allowed to have any Fords. So he went, he went, I got that truck back and I sold it for him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I talked to him. It was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was uh, the paint on it. It was like uh, Tar Heel blue and white, if I remember. That's a 86 Ford you're thinking of. Okay. His was yellow. Yellow. Okay. That that mustard yellow. Okay. Um, We did the, that's the one we did the, so after I finished it, we did a magazine article at Outdoor Buffalo Magazine, and that's the one where Chris Franzen caught that huge ass, almost 30 inch brown trout. Um, but he didn't catch it with the truck, but you know, we just, we caught it. He caught it that day. It was, a, we were doing the photo shoot anyway. Right. And they were like, you know, just going to have some pictures and maybe catch some nice Browns that catching that big ass Brown was just a bonus. Right. For that article. It worked out great. But yeah, that's Oliver's Bronco in the magazine. Okay. Well, um, what would you say is like the most interesting project you've taken on at Ogre? The one we have already done or the one we're about to do? I didn't know there was one that was about you, to be done. I'll give you two. Okay. Um, the most interesting one we ever did was the, I guess it had to be the fly fishing rig, the red F 150, the 96. Um, we uh, bought this piece of shit, 96 F-150, and this was like right around that time when I was still kind of slow but starting to get busy. Mm-hmm. And Oh, we had just done the TV show for Carbon TV, the mountain bike explorer, and they wanted another season. And I said, all right, I'll build this truck. And I built this 96. We took it down to the frame, rebuilt everything, but we went apeshit crazy. We built solid axles, four-link suspension. We started building like everything custom, four-link suspension, Everything, fly rod, vaults, you, you saw it, the red one. Mm-hmm. And that one went in the magazine after uh, the Bronco. And some dude from Maine called me after that article and asked me about it. And uh, I said, I'm probably going to sell it. And he's like, what are you going for it? And I told him, and he come down and he got it. No questions asked. Then even, like he had some transport company pick it up. Like he never even looked at it. Uh, but that was a fun build. And I really, and that one was the one we probably went the just ape shit with. We everything got upgraded to something just heavy duty, hardcore. And he uh, he sends me pictures every couple of year or two up in Maine. Still using it. Through, yeah. yeah. Um, the here's the new project, and we probably won't start on it until. Uh, and there's one more after that I'll tell you about. Uh, the one we're getting ready to start on though is. Uh, Sylvan Sport makes campers in my county. And so they called me one day and they said, hey, we've got this prototype truck that we had shipped down here from Wisconsin from this company. We, we're going to build an RV camper, like an earth roamer style mm-hmm. vehicle. Yeah. Um, that deal fell apart. They won't come get it. They just told us to take it to the crusher. Would you like it? I said, let me come look at it. I went down there and it was a, uh, all electric four wheel drive truck. Didn't have a bed on it, 
but we make flatbeds. It didn't matter. But it's got the motors, brand new tires, everything. This truck new sells for $300,000. Now, this thing's not all put together, but I was like, I can't afford that truck, man. I was like, thanks for considering me, but there's no way in hell I can afford it. He's like, just make me an offer. I said, fine, 1000 bucks." He said, 2000 I said, sold. <laughs> I got that truck for two grand. It's sitting in my shop right now. And uh, we got to decide whether to go back all electric with it or, you know, put a diesel in it or something. But it's the white truck. I don't know if you saw it on my Instagram page. Well, I don't know if I have. I mean, I'm sure I did, but I didn't recognize that it was. It's an all electric. It's got a motor in the back, a motor in the front, um, independent four-wheel suspension. I mean, this truck is crazy, man. And what's the chassis on it? It's a like a F650, F550 chassis. But it's kind of like a custom-built chassis. Okay. The company that made it was uh, Zeus. Zeus Electric Chassis. Okay. If you look it up, it's that truck. So they started with a Ford chassis. I think so. Okay. Um, but the tires on it alone, the tire and rim, I looked it up, 1500 bucks a piece. Right. The motors are like seven grand a piece. So even if I parted it out, I'm getting my money back. Of course. But it's such a cool vehicle. I just like, man, I got to do something with that. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds pretty rad. My favorite truck. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, I got it when I finished up school, I came home. I was broke, man. I had, I had 600 bucks on a sea bag to my name. That's it. But I had to have something to get back and forth to work. So I found this old 83 F-150. This dude was getting married and he needed the money. I got this old truck for 600 bucks. But I raised my kids in that truck. I went flishing all it. I, that's the truck I went sampling all those trout streams all over the state of Virginia. My kids grew up in that truck. That truck never let me down, never broke down. 83 F-150 had a 302 in it, four-wheel drive. Still got it. It's the only truck to this day that I've never sold, and I still got it. And I love that truck, and my grandkid will get that truck when I die. Yeah. Um, it's right now tore down to the frame. I just got it back from the powder coater. Just got a new Cummins 2.8 motor. Well, I've had it for a few months, but everything's going to be tip-top on that truck, and that'll be my that'll be my everyday truck when it's done. That's just the, the old daily driver. Yep, that's my that's my one love affair. What, what color? Brown. Brown. And with the the tan stripe down the middle. You've seen the F two fifty that uh, we've got over in Tennessee. I yep, know the white one. No, no, no. It's brown. Oh, the old. You're talking about the old one. Yeah, the old I one. I haven't seen that one. Oh, I'll have to show you pictures. Okay. Um, that I don't know if my aunt bought it new or not. Probably not. Um, she used it to tow a fifth wheel camper. All over Hell's Half Acre. I mean, from East Coast to West Coast of Canada and the U.S., just camping for years. Um, When she figured she had it worn out, my father bought it from her. And that was the truck that he had that he would come pick me up from swim practice in high school. If we went somewhere, it was get in that old Ford truck and drive to town. You know, that's that's the truck I grew up, you know, in. And what year is it? It's a 77. That's the dent side. And, uh, you know, it's it's got 300,000 plus, you know, miles on it at least. And uh, it's uh, got a... Upgraded rear suspension, leaf suspension, you know, for that for that weight from the fifth wheel. And it's only a two-wheel drive, but, uh, 
you know, my son Wyatt, because we've got this really long driveway, um, well before he was even old enough to have uh, a learner's permit, I'd throw him the keys and he would drive it from one end of the driveway down to the highway, turn around, drive it back, you know, like spend hours just driving back and forth, um, you know, getting experience driving the truck. And uh, I'm sorry, is this an automatic or a manual? It's automatic. Okay. It's automatic. But the funny thing is, um, I didn't realize that, you know, I just got it started up and said, here you go, you know, don't run it over into the ditch, you know, do not go out on the highway, but, you know, other than that, have fun. And he'd drive it, you know, down the driveway, come back up, drive out the runway, turn around, like just all over, you know, everywhere with it. And uh, he came in for lunch and he's like, kind of like out of breath. I was like, what are you out of breath from? He's like, that thing's hard to turn. I was like, hard to turn? I said, you're kidding me. And uh, I got in a check. It, it does not have hardly any power steering fluid left in oh, it. No. And, uh, you know, he's basically just having to horse it around. So we, you know, put some more fluid in it. And all of a sudden he's like, wow. I was like, this is more how it should should operate. But uh, power steering pumps leaking like crazy and it's got, you know, its own set of issues, you know, with the transmission. But uh, long story short, like you, you know, there's an emotional attachment to it. So you and I have talked about it. I'm going to probably invest a little bit of money and getting a little bit more mechanically sound. It's it's no showroom piece. I don't ever want it to become one. I want it to be kind of exactly, exactly what my father kind of left yep. behind, that look. And... Uh, Maybe a little upgrade on the paint here or there. Um, and uh, Wyatt and I have talked about a couple of custom ideas for it. But uh, it would be a nice truck if we flew up to Tennessee that he would just be able to hop in it and go. and the tr- short bed or a long bed? Long bed. Okay. Drive down to the river and, you know, go to the fly shop or go to the skate park, whatever. But uh, you'll probably see that truck at some point. I'd love to get my hands on it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what got me into Ford trucks is my granddad uh-huh. had a 74 F100. I mean, that's what he hauled me around in all over the place. Right. It was black with a red interior. And uh, I wish it was a, a manual, you know. but uh, Yeah, his was a three-speed on the tree. Uh-huh. I found that truck, uh, and I, I was in the Marine Corps, and I found it. And the guy had it set behind his barn. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I went back over there to, to buy it. I mean, they had taken it to the crusher. Oh, man. I was, so, I was not devastated, but I was bummed out for sure. Right. But, yeah, that's what the, that's, that style truck's what got me, I guess, got you stu- bit by the, by the Ford bug. Right. But, you know, the segue into what you talked about, like he didn't realize what was the, the power steering. Like, like even our, my kids, they don't know anything about working on vehicles. I mean, I, I think it's our fault. Oh, it is for uh, sure. But, well, just take a phone away from a kid and tell them, Take me to whatever town, three towns away. They wouldn't know how to get there. Yeah, but there's a serious technician shortage now, and I'm, there's a shortage on everything. But I can't find anybody to come work because even if I can find them, they don't know how to work on a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, what about welding? Uh, like same on thing. the fabrication same side, thing, man. you know, it's funny. Um, who is it? Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs. Yeah. He's got the Mike Rowe Foundation. And he is having trouble giving away scholarships to kids 
to go out and learn a trade like welding. He'll, he'll pay for them to go and get their welding certifications. Um, and he has trouble giving away the money. Well, here, you know what I told my kids growing up? Don't be like me working your ass off every day in a garage. Go get a four-year education. That's what we always told them. Right. That was a mistake. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's, uh, you know, they talk about big sugar if you're talking Everglades. You know, if you're talking, um, you know, something happens in the Gulf with an oil rig. Oh, big oil. You know, big pharma. Everybody, you know, there's another big out there that nobody ever talks about. It's big education. Yeah, that's the that's the biggest fuck you uh, out there as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, my generation, I'm a Gen Xer. Me too. We were taught that if we graduated high school and did not go to college, that we were going to be abject failures and, you know, leeches on society for the rest of our natural born life. So, you know, at minimum, you had to go get your bachelor's degree. Dude, I remember being, I won't say ashamed, but not as good as the people that got four-year degrees when I got my associates from Denver Moving Diesel. Wow. Like, kind of feeling that way. Okay. Well, and then by the, let's call it late 90s, I would say, um, the requirement to be a success in the United States shifted because... Everybody had four-year degrees. Not everyone, but, you know, a, a, a large number, you know, that, that ship had sailed. So big education was like, well, what do we do now? You know, we need more students. So that's when the whole MBA, go get your MBA at night. Everybody signed up and spent money at the colleges for their MBA. Now, I am not denigrating going and getting a four-year degree. It's of value if you see yourself in a role that requires that level of education, go do it. But how many people have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt that have a degree in some kind of wacky um, liberal arts degree that there's no corresponding job for it? And they're, now they're saying, well, I've got all this debt. What am I going to do? Well, you should have made better decisions back in the past. You fell for it. You took the bait. Know what you're going to go to school Because, you know, there's, there's plenty of, quote, unquote, blue collar. Most people look down when you say blue collar. Oh, blue collar. Blue collar careers that are making white collar salaries. Um, you know, welders are, are one of those. You know, there's guys that oh, can yeah. weld that... If you're a good welder, you can go wherever you want in this country and make damn good money doing it. Um, if I had a welder that walked in my shop tomorrow and said, bro, tell me what you want to get done, I'll do it. I'll have it done by the end of the week. Uh, by the way, I'm going to go mountain bike and Tuesday and Wednesday, but I'll still have it done by the end of the week, and I want 50 bucks an hour. <laughs> yeah, Sign. you're hired, man. Right. No there. problem. Right. I can't even find someone to sweep the floor half the time, mm-hmm. much less find someone who says, even if I found someone that said, hey, man, I'm not that good of a welder, like I told David Jinks, but I'll work my ass off for you if you'll teach me how to weld. Right. I'd, I'd hire him. Yeah. I can't even find that. There's, you know, there's a, I want to say almost like a little renaissance um, within the skateboarding community that... uh a lot of the kids that I knew when Wyatt was younger at the skate park, 
they were all 17 going on 18 when he was, you know, 9 or 10, that they figured out that a good way to fund their adventure and to get out of Florida and to make it to the West Coast where the skateboarding lifestyle is way more robust. Um, and you can almost, you, you, you um, kind of look at like, you know, how you learned how to fly fish, but you really didn't get the real, real bug until you saw the movie. Right. And then you're like, wow, that's, that's what I want to become. I, I think I could really thrive and, you know, have a good time fly fishing. A lot of kids here in Florida, they skate, they're good skaters, but all of the videos that they see are West Coast skaters doing West Coast things, and they're like, their dream is to make it to the West Coast, where skateboarding is a whole lot bigger and just... So these kids who have been watching these video parts and seeing all this stuff go on on the West Coast are like, how am I going to get there? You know, well, option number one is to couch surf and be hand to mouth, maybe work at a Starbucks or something and crash on their buddy's couch till they kick them out. And then there's a few of them that figured out, well, if I go to school here, get my welding certification, I can go to California, make really damn good money and be right in the heart of everything I want to be in. Right and that's ticket, what, man. and that's what st- has started happening. And there's a whole handful of those guys that were, right at Wyatt's ages now that were, you know, back when he was nine or 10, they'd be like, Hey, did you hear Jake moved to California? No shit. What's Jake doing out there? He's fabricating this, that, or the other for so-and-so and just, he's living out there. What about so-and-so? Oh yeah. They just moved out there too. Same thing. They went to school for welding and I'm not pushing welding. I'm just saying there are trades out there, plenty of them. Look at, look at that culture out there, like in SoCal. Like, that's where the hot rod scene began, and mm-hmm. that's where the surfing scene began. That's where the skateboarding scene, you know, Lord of Dogtown. Yeah. I mean, that's all SoCal. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, I feel like I we kind of have that culture at Ogre, but the mechanics and the welders where I live, you know, they're the NASCAR culture. Right. Um, so maybe that's the maybe that's The, the difference. Obst- yeah, the obstacle. Yeah. Um, but that's why I went to Denver, man. Because I snowboarded when I was a kid, and I never snowboarded out west, and I always wanted to, wanted to, and I did, and it was awesome, and I loved it. Nice. So yeah, I get, I totally get it. So, what would forty nine year old, right? Forty nine. Yeah. What would forty nine year old Jason say to seventeen year old Jason, as far as education and life choices that they may be making in the next couple of years? You know, I don't know if I'd change anything, man. And the reason I say that is because I wouldn't have my son and my two kids if I hadn't got my girlfriend pregnant. You know, and my wife that I've been married to for 31 years. I understand that. I'm not saying, you know, how. what would you say that would have changed your trajectory? I'm saying if you had the opportunity to tell a 17- or 18-year-old, you know, I tell them to every person you meet, every shitty thing you think is actually an opportunity. Um, Because thank God I joined the Marine Corps. Thank God I didn't go to a four-year college. Like, all that stuff, I'm so grateful that that happened to me. Um, 
But yeah, I think I would have been a little bit more outgoing. I would have made Dan Shore everybody. Hey, I'm Jason Bowen. How are you? you know what I right. mean? And not because I want to know who I was, just because I want to know all about them and what I can learn from them. Right. Um, everything is an opportunity. And that's what I was hoping you would say. Yeah. And that's what I believed you would say is, you know, there's an opportunity at every introduction. There's an opportunity at every failure. Um, you know, I, I find fly fishing and skateboarding to be strangely similar in the fact that, uh, you know, skaters don't look at not landing a trick as a failure. It's just one more try, one more try, one more try until they do, until they do it. And, the, and if they apply what they do with their passion to just life in general, they're fucking unstoppable. Um, no different than when we go fishing, which uh, you and I and Jameson went out on Monday, I yep. believe it was. Um, was it Monday? No. What day? Did we? Yeah, it was Monday. Um, you know, just because we see a redfish and you make a cast at a redfish and it doesn't work out, it's not like, oh, gee shucks, damn, you know, I don't like this anymore. It's like, all right, what do I need to do a little bit different the next time? It's like, well, hey, try this, you know, take this angle. And it's an opportunity. And it's like another opportunity is around the corner of the next mangrove, you know. And every time I've come down here, it's, I've gotten a little better. Uh-huh. And, and like, the fish can't follow the fly. Yeah, you had a good follow. You just got too close to the boat and spooked off the boat. So, uh, you know, you're, you're pretty fucking due the next time you're out. So, so for yeah. Sure. Which... I don't know how you do it. Most times that you come down here, it's like some of the shittiest weather that you drag down here with you. Look, man, I'm a Marine. Improvise, adapt, and overcome, man. <laughs> so I want you to tell me a little bit more about the real reason you're here. So the real reason Jason is here this week is he uh, was able to take advantage of an opportunity mm-hmm. um, to learn how to surf recently. Right. And... Uh, knowing that he had just uh, taken up surfing and it seems to be competing quite uh, vigorously with his fly fishing habit, he is uh, surfing his ass off. So tell us from how you learned of the opportunity, where it's taken you so far to here you are now and all about parking lot five. That's a lot to unpack, but there you go. Can we take a bathroom break? Absolutely. So uh, we're like, uh, gosh, Almost an hour and a half into it, so uh, you know, a couple of guys with uh, prostate issues are going to take a little break, and when we come back, you're going to meet Jason from Brevard, North Carolina, surfer extraordinaire.
back. So, uh, Jason, uh, go ahead and take it away. Talk to us about uh, this most recent opportunity that you've had with the surfing. All right. So, two years ago, I got diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. Um, you know that. Uh, so, I was going to the VA. Nothing was helping. Absolutely nothing. Um, you know, the doctor, VA doctors are not the greatest, man. They were not giving me good news. Uh, so I went to Atlanta to a cancer hospital, uh, Emory Hospital, and they specialize in cancer stuff. And after we left there, um, let me back up a little bit. The reason I went to Emory is because a lady named Debbie Lee, she runs a program called America's Mighty Warriors. She had hooked me up with a lady that did hyperbaric chamber stuff because I thought that might help with the cancer. Turns out it might, might not, but she says, but you should go to Emory. So I did. Uh, and when I left Emory, I was kind of kind of hopeful, but still kind of bummed out. I had my wife with me, and so we went to the Southeast Wildlife Expo over in Charleston mm-hmm. to kind of get my mind off of it and you know walk around and have a good time together for the weekend. So we're walking around there, and have you ever been to that festival? I have not been. It's all, you know, everyone's in bow ties and dressed to the nine. You know what I mean? It's really nice outdoor. Put this. It's the bougie Charleston It's the outdoor frat boy club, man. Right, yeah. And I'm not knocking it because I love it. So I walk around this corner, and there's these two dudes in T-shirts. Their hair hasn't been combed. They got beards. One of them's barefooted. And I knew they were veterans. I knew it right away. So I walk up to him, I'm like, hey, man, what's up? And uh, one of them was a Marine. And so, you know, super five. We got to talking, like, what are y'all doing here? And they're like, we're running this booth called Warrior Surf. We take veterans uh, with PTSD and cancer. And I didn't tell anything about my cancer. I, and he might not even said that. But, you know, with health problems. And we take them surfing to get their mind off of it or even help them heal. He gave me a brochure. So I live in Brevard, North Carolina, four and a half hours away. He said, hey, you should apply, and if you get in, it's a 12-week course down here in Folly Beach, South Carolina. And I was like, man, it's four and a half hours away. There's no way in hell I can do that. And uh, I'm walking off, and he goes, hey, man, surfing's better than anything you're getting at the VA right now. And I said, I thought to myself, how the fuck did he know I was going to the VA? Right. So it kind of struck me. Right. Caught your attention. Yes. So I said, all right, I'll think about it. And uh, next day, I said, fuck it, man, I'm going to apply. So I applied. And even when I applied, I wrote, hey, man, I live in Brevard, North Carolina, four and a half hours away. So if, if the class fills up, just kick me out because I'd rather someone close by have the opportunity. Next day, I got an email. Hey, man, you're in the program. So it's pretty stoked that I got in, but... I kind of started selling off stuff because I thought I was going to die, man. Right. I started selling off stuff to prepare my wife to be financially taken care of when I die. And uh, I said, I don't have any way to get down there. And uh, the next day, my buddy Josh Chambers came in the shop. He owns Acousta. Mm-hmm. He goes, hey, my neighbor's got this old abandoned truck in his yard. I think he's trying to get rid of it. You want to go look at it? I like, right. went and looked at it. He won 500 bucks for it. He said, truck's blown up. It doesn't run. You'll have to you know, probably put a motor in it. 
And I said, well, for 500 bucks, I can sell the axles out of it, no problem. So I bought it, brought it back to the shop, and uh, I was goofing around with it, and I tried to start it, and I noticed the, the battery terminal was sparking every time I tried to start it. I said, huh. Clean up the battery cable, charge it for a minute, start it right up. <laughs> I said, man, dude, you just sold me a $500 truck, man, it runs. Because of some corrosion. Yeah, but his brother had died and left it, you know, truck, but the truck had been sitting there before he died. So they thought the motor had blown up when all it was was a battery cable. So I fixed it all up and I drove that thing all summer back and forth to Folly Beach. I get up every Friday or Saturday morning at 2.30 in the morning and drive down there to make it to the 7.30 yoga session, surf session, wellness session. Um, and I graduated, graduated the program. Um, and the the teary-eyed moment of that, all of that was my uh, surf instructor, Harold, Harold Veranda, great, great man. Uh, he's a Marine also. Uh, when I graduated, he gave me his surfboard. Oh, man. And uh, it was, uh, it was a, you know, one of those moments where you get a little teary-eyed. So it's a great program. I can't say enough about it. Uh, and the truck made it the whole 12 weeks. And it, the motor blew up the week after I finished the program. And uh, I was going to part it out. But, man, that truck got me through chemo. That truck got me through getting me to the program. So I put a new motor in it, and I still got it. Um, if anybody is out there who is a veteran and has some shit going on and they live near South Carolina, it's warriorsurf.com. Go sign up. I can't say enough good shit. And the, and the happy end in all, all that, too, I forgot to mention, is my canter numbers started going down. I'm not saying surfing saved my life, <laughs> right. but I, I man, I like to think it had something to do with it. It's made your quality of life better. Yeah, you damn right it has, and that's what really matters right now. Yep. Um, and is that the truck on your chest? That's it. The surf that's truck, it, man. That's the Franken truck. So uh, if you go to Ogre on Instagram, you can see uh, the surf truck. Uh, it's Franken truck slash the surf truck uh, is the, how it's referred to on some of your posts. And uh, Jason has some really cool black T-shirts with uh, the surf truck on it. Uh, he's done a lot of custom work to it. It's badass looking. Is it a 250? It's a 2001 F-250. It's a gas motor, but we did a lift kit on it. Mm-hmm. We did tires. We did Fox suspension. We did new motor. We front did bumper. Front bumper, winch. I robbed, like, the whole time I was going through my treatment, I, I wasn't making any money. Right. So I would, like, rob parts off of other old shit, you know, trucks to kind of put it together. That's why I got the name Franken Truck. Right. And uh, I bought a parts truck for two grand to kind of finish it up. But all that's the, the parts, one with the cab crushed on it? or No, that's a, that's the black flatbed. Okay. Um, this one, it's gone. The parts truck's gone now. But, like, I sold all the parts for four grand. So I made two grand while I was doing the treatment right. to work on that truck. So like the truck kind of helped get me through too, you know. Yeah, I mean? gave you something to do. Right, and like I said, it's a piece of metal, but you know, I got a I got a soft heart for things that have engines in them. So I like to think that that thing kept me going. So uh, the uh, surfing experience um, also has led you to do some travel recently. That's right. Um, so. After I completed this, the program, uh, they said, hey, we take 10 people. And they have three or four classes all year. 
and they're like, we take 10 people out of those three or four classes and we offer a free trip, surf trip to Guatemala. I didn't get in. So I thought, <laughs> uh, they announced the 10 people that were going. They're like, better luck next year. Cool. No big deal. So about a week before Christmas, I get a phone call. Hey man, I had somebody drop out. Can you go to, if you want to go to Guatemala, get your plane ticket. We're leaving in eight days or something like that. So I was like, oh shit. <laughs> but I did it. And, uh, took my wife. We went to Guatemala and we surfed and it was awesome. And the waves out there are not East Coast waves, man. <laughs> they humbled me. But it made me a better surfer for sure. Uh, while we were there, we did wellness and yoga. And, you know, we had the circle and talking about our experiences. And, yeah, you know, I'll say this. Yeah, I got cancer and it sucks. But, man, there's some veterans out there. I know people always say support your veterans, but God, man, support your fucking veterans. They have been through a lot and they've got some problems. And I get asked all the time, you know, same thing, you know, oh man, that really sucks that, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? I'm like, dude, I'm going to live my fucking life. Like there's people that have way worse stuff than I do. Like, don't, don't feel sorry for me, you know? I'm playing the hand of cards I was dealt, and I'm going to play them the best way I can. Right. Like, you know, save your sympathy and empathy for somebody that really, really has it bad. Yeah, um, and, and there's a, I don't, I don't want to say what some of these problems are because they might be listening. I want to sure the spot, but, and there's some people that really need help. Yeah. And, uh, and don't have the resources. Yeah, and I'll put it this way. There's some people, whether they're in the program or I'm related to or I know them, They've tried to kill themselves six times. And all six times, I, I wasn't involved in all six, but I was involved in one of me just calling and, or going to visit them and going, hey, man, what's up? That's it. That's what kept them from putting a bullet in their head. Mm-hmm. So if you know anybody that's a veteran, and they even seem a little bit off. I'm not just veterans, anybody. Right. But uh, in the veteran community, because that's what I'm familiar with, man, just say, hey, what's up, man? Take them fishing. Yeah. Take them fishing. Take them surfing. Go grab a moot. Whatever. Go have a cup of coffee. Yeah. And listen. Exactly. Yep. Um, I, I met one dude one time. This is a different dude that said, I was going to kill myself. And the only reason I didn't kill myself because I kept saying, if just one person asked me how I'm doing, I won't do it. And he goes, I don't know what happened with the phone ring. And so it was my one of my old veteran buddies and said, how you doing? I mean, I, I feel like that's divine intervention, but mm-hmm. that's all it took. Right. So, yeah, just check on man. So, anyway, yeah, we did that in Guatemala and uh, got back. I got sick the last day I was there. I, I must have ate something or drank the water. I don't know. Right. And uh, But I got back, and then you called me right before I left and uh, said, Hey man, I got this place down here in New Smyrna Beach. If you want to come surfing, come on down. And can't say no to that. Yeah. <laughs> so here I am. Yeah, we've really enjoyed having you in town this week. Uh, it's been uh, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed being yeah. here, and I won't say damn you, but you and your wife introducing me to that dog, man. <laughs> <laughs> he has definitely tugged on my heartstrings. Yeah, this he's week. he's a good dog, and you know, I mean, I'm not a. Uh, 
I don't think, you know, trying to pressure anybody into making a decision is the right thing to do. So you're not not going to get any pressure from me. But it's been pretty unique watching that dog interact with you. Like that dog has done stuff with you that he hasn't done with anybody in our household the entire time. He's a good dog. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, what's the – I can't think of the movie, but uh, there's a movie where the little blonde-headed kid – uh, with the lisp says, uh, did you know that uh, dogs and bees can smell fear? I don't know what movie that is. Um, dogs are also really good at uh, identifying good human beings and people you know, with good souls. And that dog, like, grabbed you from the time you walked in like i mean literally grabbed you yeah he grabbed me by the sleeve and was pulling yeah, on me that yeah second day and then you know the way he jumped up and curled up in your lap was like whoa he's never done that he, you know like he'll lay on the couch while you know but i mean he was up in up in your grill um well, i'm not tooting my own horn but you know, you know the old saying a dog's a better judge of character than most people are there you go so uh well um you know, from from you coming down and being able to uh, take advantage of uh, the condo that you know we were, we were looking for somebody to be able to use it because we weren't going to be able to. Um, and our little town's known on the East Coast as being a pretty decent surf location. So, right. you know, knowing that you'd been going through the the program and had graduated and you'd been bit by the bug because it was funny like i would call you and be like hey man where you at and you're like oh i just left foley beach and i'm like shit man i'm pulling into charleston now and you're like no shit you know (laughs) and like we'd miss each other by like you know five hours in charleston and stuff so i was like damn jason is surfing all the time so the wife and i were like let's call jason and see if he wants to use the condo and when we offered it to you you're like yeah, I think I could do that. And uh oh. we've got it's it's afforded us the opportunity to hang out. We've we've had dinner together, you know, almost every night this week. Yeah. Um Your wife's a good cook, great cook. And yeah, she <laughs> is. I, I dude, I I outkicks my coverage big time. Um so uh this evening, uh we're gonna hang out with the rest of the fellows from the podcast and some other friends of the podcast and do some fly tying. Um down um, in the heart of Florida's greatest fishery, Melbourne, Florida, and that's the uh, great. That's that's better than like the Everglades. Oh, it's it's by far Melbourne, according to Ben, is like the best fishery in the entire state. Really? Now I think Ben's probably alone in saying that. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. <laughs> but uh, you know, we enjoy giving him a hard time about it. Gotcha. Um. And uh, I guess uh, prior to getting down there, we're going to wander around, maybe check out some uh, rocket ships and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I think, uh, yeah, I, for those who don't know, I have a four-year-old grandson now who is the is my world. Yeah, and, uh, his only request was to bring home a rocket ship. So we're going to make sure that happens. Um, you know, hopefully, we're going to see more and more of you. Um, you know, here here in the uh, studio. AKA the uh, the old Taylor Park. You're always welcome. Well, and you're only uh, what an hour and a half from me up in yeah. So I hope to see you more around the shop too. Absolutely. Um, 
Anything else that we have uh, missed or want to circle back to? One thing I like to just say uh, in closing, in uh, falling back on my uncle's death, uh, it's, it's unsolved. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a you'll have to look at the FBI's website, but I want to say it's a half a million dollar reward for anybody who has any information. Uh, my grandparents are dead now. My uncle's dead. My dad's the only one left alive. And I would love for him to have some closure before he dies to know who killed his brother. Yeah. Uh, and he did have a daughter. I'm sorry. He had a daughter. She was two or three at the time. Yeah. So she, she, she never, was she was in the house when it she happened. She was in the house. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and she, you know, she never met her dad. And it would be great for her to have some closure to know who killed her father. So if anybody has any information, his name's Johnny Rush Bowman. Uh, if you just Google it, you can go on the FBI's website. If anybody has any information, please call them and, you know, get this case closed. Yeah, um, and and sometimes it's uh, something as benign as a little fly fishing podcast that brings something up that one of our listeners we happens to connected, know somebody that heard about that story one time, and the fact that they heard about it and you find out who they heard about it from leads to it becoming solved. So, yep. uh, you know, if you're listening to this, look it up, Google it. Um, if if you have any relatives in that area, um, ask them if they'd heard about it. If that you know, it, maybe they all they remember is from the news, or they're like, "Oh yeah, old Jim Bob so and so said something about that," and uh, yeah, that might know. be the tip that they need because they'll go talk to Jim Bob, find out why he was talking about it and what he knew about it. Right. Uh, he might have a detail that hadn't been publicly released, and now suddenly they've got somewhere to go look. So, uh, yeah, that's that's certainly a good thing to throw out there. Um, I want to talk to you when we get off the off the podcast here about uh, all those rooster fish you saw while you were down in oh. Guatemala. I, I may not surf, but I'll take pictures of you surfing while in between uh, doing a little uh, surf casting. I'll throw this out there: there's no fly fishing lodges in El Paradón, Guatemala. <laughs> and there's rooster fish everywhere. So if anybody wants to go into fly fishing lodge business, uh, I'd be interested in having that conversation. <laughs> there you go. Uh, one other thing, too, uh, about the cancer stuff. Uh, the reason I got checked for cancer is because of you. So thank you for that. Hey, you're all. welcome. Um, if there's anybody out there, too, though, get good check, man. I was 47 years old. I was kind of young. You were kind of young to be getting it. I, I was diagnosed at 49. Uh, both of us are what they would call atypical patients. Um, most prostate cancer patients are in their late 60s, early 70s. You know, Google and, you know, WebMD and all of those places are probably the worst thing that could have happened to uh, healthcare um, because. On my own personal cancer journey, you know, I knew I was having symptoms and I would look up symptoms and it would always bring it up. But most of the literature that you find out there is how it's a very survivable cancer. It's a very slow growing cancer. You know, it's like not, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe you do, but it's not that big of a deal. Um, it's a big fucking deal if you're in your 40s when you get it. Right. It's a, it, That's an indicator that it, there's something really going wrong. Yep. And, uh, again, um, we're, we're talking about this because, you know, there there is a Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, but it's certainly not like, you know, 
October where, you know, breast cancer awareness month, you know, guys don't typically like to talk about their junk. Um, they don't like to talk about their health and I'm living proof for now that, uh, you know, we don't like to go to the damn doctor and we'll find every reason why we shouldn't have to. And, uh, I'm here to tell you whether it's prostate related or any kind of change that you have in your body that's kind of unexplained, get to the damn doctor. Um, it, it could be the difference between you just getting treatment and being fine. Or if you put it off and you put it off and you put it off, you're going to get a talk where at the end of it, you're going to walk out and you're going to be a hollow shell of yourself for a few hours questioning, why the fuck didn't I do something? Now what? Exactly. And just like you said, you you pulled the trigger on starting to sell stuff. And like, you know, like my immediate thought was, what are my wife and kid going to do? You know, I have got to start positioning assets and and money and resources so that when I'm not here, because the guy that really told me that I was in serious peril um, at stage four made me feel like I could be gone a week after I talked to him, you know? Yeah. You know, luckily I went to the Mayo after that and they kind of like moderated the level of fear that I was given and actually gave hope that there's certainly treatment that I could go through, which I did. Uh, anybody that went to the dinghy derby a couple of years ago, you saw me walking around, you know, like an old man with no hair. And that was because of the chemotherapy. Um, right now we're in buy time mode because there's really a lot of research going on. Uh, things, may change for the better for both of us where there could be a cure in a couple of years. Um, We're both going to live for another 30 years. I hope so. um, Because I got a lot more people I need to piss off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was was the other thing, man. Uh, Hope. And if you're out there listening you got cancer, don't give up, man. Yeah, don't give up. You're not Uh, dying of it. You're living with it. That's right. You know, there's um, an article that went around kind of, you know, how things go around on the internet and it was an obituary um, that uh, a gentleman out somewhere in the Midwest um, wrote for himself, I believe, if, uh, if I'm remembering it correctly. And it talks about this great life that he lived and all the things that he loved and was leaving behind. And he said that, you know, he had become sick with cancer and that at the end of his days that cancer never did beat him because technically when he died it died too so the best cancer can do is fucking tie you that's right it don't kill you it ties you Mm -hmm. so you know you're still able to live life to your fullest whatever that capability is just keep positive And, and there's other guys that listen to the regular show um, that have reached out to me that have had cancer diagnoses and, you know, it's different cancer, but they're having a lot of trouble with, you know, squaring it away in their mind. How's, you know, I've got to take chemos coming up. How did it, how was chemo for you? And I always tell them I was lucky 
you know, when I went through chemo, I didn't have any nausea or, you know, any of the side effects that are terrible that most people associate with chemo. Um, I was fortunate. And, you know, I just told them my best advice is some of the advice that I got at the Mayo, which is take it day by day, live life to the fullest day by day. If your body tells you you need rest, rest. If not, get out there and get after it. Enjoy yourself, you know, because that's that's your choice, you know. The past two years, it's been one of the best two years of my life. Same here. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. (laughs) I I mean, just, you know, last year, 22, I fished more places with more people, went and shared, you know, Alaska with my son, went and did, you know, tarpon fishing with a couple of different groups of friends, you know, one in the Keys, one in the Everglades. I'm fishing out here in the lagoon as often as I can, Um, you know, trying to balance that work life balance, you know, and, uh, 2023, I mean, (sighs) February, I'm going to have a a tough time keeping up with my own schedule. I've got so much stuff on the books because Uh, I'm kind of dreading going back home (laughs) because I've got a list of shit already. Right. You know, mine's, mine's, you know, I'm going to Tennessee for a week, um, a little over, uh, come back from that and, turn right around and i've got you know another trip planned you know after that we've got a big film project that we're working on um throughout the spring trying to squeeze maybe a little bahamas trip in there somewhere this spring you know so i mean we got a lot of stuff going on and uh when my kid was younger and we lived in another town that didn't have a skate park um I worked really hard for about five years as as an advocate for the town to get a skate park. Um, that town is actually breaking ground this year to build a big skate park. Oh, yeah. And I just got a phone call because I fucked up and went to a city commission meeting two weeks ago. And while I was at the city commission meeting, we were there because we have a skate park in the town where we live now in New Smyrna. That's why we moved here. A big reason. Okay. That and we wanted to be on the coast. Um, that skate park has been around for over a decade now, and skateboarding has become more and more popular. That skate park has become more and more crowded, and every, all the kids are like, damn, you know, it's just so crowded. I can't get a run in. You know, there's no line. You know, it's just like it's the number of skaters going to the park on a regular basis. It's it needs to be bigger. All right. And from the very beginnings of the skate park in New Smyrna, they had a plan for like a phase two. Well, the funding was approved last year in the fiscal year with the budget, but it was contingent on matching funds from a grant. The manager for the recreation department kind of half-assed the grant op- application, and it was denied. What? So... At the freaking meeting, when we went in and said, don't you dare allocate this money to anything else. This is, you know, we, we fought hard for this, you know. He was walking out, and I walked out right behind him, and I stopped him, introduced myself, and said, listen, I don't know how to write grants, but it can't be that hard. Let me help you. I'll take, I'll take on whatever you have to delegate. We are going to, this is going to happen. 
I got that phone call yesterday, and I have a meeting on Wednesday of next week. I'm going to learn how to be a grant writer and write a grant so that we get that. And, you know, it's like, and I think you, you know, you're in that time in your life. You know, it's what can I leave behind as a legacy of an example for you? It's probably for your grandson. For me, it's for my, for, for my kid, Wyatt, you know, I want him to see that life is more than just what you do for yourself do stuff for others as best you can as well. So, but you said it right there. You didn't like run up to that dude and like, God damn it, how dare you don't help get to write this grant better? And you're, you know, it's your fault. This blah blah blah. You said, Hey man, how can I help you get this accomplished? Yeah. And that dude was like, Oh, you're gonna help me instead of berating me, right? And that's what everyone needs to do in this world. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine how many. Whether it's politics, whether it's anything, said, "Hey, man, instead of me fighting with you, me going, hey, man, how can, how can I we help do it you? together? Yep, how can I help you with this? Yeah, let's team up. Yeah, teamwork so, makes the dream work. That's damn right, it is. So, all right, well, uh, we've got uh, some rockets to chase down, that's right? And uh, some feather and fur to whip around. So, uh, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and do this. I am honored to be here. One last thing, we're hiring. Everybody's <laughs> out there wanting to just work, live in the mountains and uh, can weld or turn wrenches. But uh, yes, thank you very much, Larry, for having me today. And it was, it's been awesome. Uh, you and Shannon have, I cannot, it's, uh, I hope I can repay you hey, for everything you've done this week. Not required. We're happy to have you. We love having you around. Uh, look forward to the next visit. Look forward to seeing you up in the mountains. Um, can't wait to uh, hit some brookie streams with you. And, uh, With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode of not really a beer with, but we had a good time. Absolutely. All right, Jason. Thanks. Thank you.